Bible Geek here, Robert M. Price, coming at you a bit uh, belatedly, perhaps, uh, but it's October, and as some of you may know, uh, my daughter Victoria and I like to spend as much time in uh, October counting down to Halloween by watching as many horror movies as we can squeeze in every day, uh, usually uh, Universal Monster movies and other related ones like uh, Columbia's Return of the Vampire and The Black Room and nifty stuff like that. So I haven't been uh, able to get to actual uh, work uh, that much. But uh, today I'm uh, trying to catch up a little bit. So let's say we take a look at some some Bible geek questions. Uh, but before I do that, I'd just like to once again plug a book by um, Zacharias Thundy, T-H-U-N-D-Y, called The Trial of Jesus and His Death on the Cross, Buddhist Sources of Gospel Narratives. Uh, the Trial of Jesus and His Death on the Cross, Buddhist Sources of Gospel Narratives. In it, he uh, summarizes uh, previous uh, work in this vein because uh, decades ago there were more scholars that pursued Buddhist parallels. And there have been some more recently, uh, J. Duncan, M. Derrett. J.A.T. Robinson and uh, so forth, uh, but the, this really uh, is uh, just partly building on Christian Lindner's innovative work. It's uh, very fascinating stuff, and I recommend you read it. It's uh, pretty cheap from Amazon. Okay, uh, Tom Hudson says, considering the upcoming Halloween holiday, can you discuss the zombie story in the book of Matthew? Uh, what is it supposed to mean? How is it explained away by modern Christians? Wouldn't it make a great screenplay? Did they eat brains? Happy Halloween. Uh, well, some comments on zombies in general. To me, they are the most ridiculous of all uh, cinematic monsters. Uh, I know, you know, all of them are kind of impossible, but uh, they're really rubbing your nose in the absurdity of it uh, in zombie stories because, they're, of course, you know, a white zombie with Lugosi got it exactly right decades ago because there are zombies. They're um, slave laborers kept in a drugged stupor uh, after people have drugged them with the kind of stuff you find in toads and blowfish or pufferfish or whatever. A certain kind of chemical that induces uh, a cataleptic state indistinguishable from death except they don't start decaying, but, uh, you know, you don't know that. Uh, and uh, so you bury them or put them in a mausoleum. Of course, you'd finish them off fast if you embalmed them, but in, in Haiti, apparently, they didn't do that all the time. And so they would, like somebody wanted your inheritance, uh, so they couldn't wait for you to die, but didn't actually want to 
kill uh, old granddad or whatever so they put out a contract on him and the local witch doctors the bocors uh would uh, give him this drug surreptitiously and they would seem to die and um so um you know the mourners quote unquote would uh, inherit and a few days later knowing when the drugs effects would wear off the bocor and his henchmen would come and dig up the body as it was coming out of the coma and uh, then they would give him a, a lesser drug and keep him uh, employed in the cane fields uh, th this was shown by Wade Davis uh, a few decades ago now I guess sometime in the 70s or 80s but the uh, people that wrote White Zombie already surmised that's what was going on. And uh, for you, my friend, they are the angels of death. Um, and so, I mean, that kind of zombie actually existed, and it does make some sense. Uh, but uh, the Night of the Living Dead type zombie, which is now you know just flooded popular culture here you got real dead folks and uh whether it's radiation from a comet or uh some kind of drug like in the uh resident evil game and movies or whatever some virus like in 28 days later or the walking dead either way you're supposed to believe that these people are dead but they're uh they're they're uh, living again well you know uh, there's so many absurdities to this how do they have a functioning digestive system for the the flesh they eat or just the brains in uh, the George Romero case but the worst part is if you're talking about people uh, let's forget the um the virus thing, uh, like Night of the Living Dead, when they're rotting corpses that are brought back to a semblance of life, it, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Because uh, if they died, it was because the physical mechanism of the body stopped working. Well, how does it... Uh, and the guys are still, like, half decayed, right? Uh, so it's not like it's a, the the Christian resurrection, right, where you're back with a new body or the whatever. Uh, no, it's, it's comparable to saying you're going to go to a junkyard and get in a wrecked car and drive it off the lot. You ain't going to do that because it's not going to work, which is why it's there to begin with, right? It's like, well, it doesn't have any wheels or tires on it. It doesn't have a steering wheel or a transmission, but we sprinkle the radioactive fairy dust on it, and it uh, it now it's drivable again. What the heck? You, I mean, you, you can't take a close look at this or you see how preposterous it is. The Walking Dead is so great because they say, all right, uh, can you accept that? And then we'll get on to what the show is really about. Because the title, The Walking Dead, is intended to refer to the human survivors, right? Not the monsters. And the whole thing is about the social dynamics in this post-apocalypse world. Uh, same thing with Battlestar Galactica, right? The, uh, most of the human race is destroyed by this robot race. And they're fleeing the Cylon. And uh, the, the, the robots, yeah, big deal. You don't even see them that often. But the, the point is, if you just got a handful of the human race left, what are, what's going to happen now? Are you going to try to 
re-energize a form of government that depended on a much bigger group? Well, what's going to happen? That, that's what made uh, Battlestar Galactica so fascinating, and the same thing is true of The Walking Dead. The zombies are really just uh, part of the uh, the furniture, right? The, the thing is really about human interaction and organization in the wake of the zombie apocalypse. So, um... So much for our little Halloween treat. How about the thing in the Gospel of Matthew, where it says, well, rather than rely on my increasingly tenuous memory, let's just take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 28, and, uh, or 27, I guess, right? Um Ooh, there's the uh, the darkness and the earthquake and all that stuff. And uh, it says uh, in verse uh, 51 and following, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, what the heck's going on there? Well, uh, what is it? Well, let's let's deal with the question of what is supposed to have happened. And... Uh, it seems to me the Jehovah's Witnesses come close to a good uh, explanation of this, and uh, this isn't—I guess it, it counts as rationalizing um, in order to evade just a grossly ridiculous uh, story. Because, because even if you believe miracles are possible, there's certain things that just seem too extravagant, and uh, so the. Um, the witnesses say that, wait a minute, you got it all wrong. It doesn't mean that these guys came back to life like Jesus uh, did around the same time. It means that uh, the rock tombs, such as Jesus was buried in, Joseph's tomb, were were broken open uh, along with various rocks and boulders because of the earthquake, that it's an index of the severity of the earthquake showing the displeasure of God and so on. Well, now, the critics would say, of course, that that's legendary, too. And they'd be right, but the, you'd have to even ask, what the heck is the point of of actually resurrecting these people? The witnesses say it just means that these bodies, perhaps recently buried, were now exposed to view. Uh, well, that makes a lot of sense, but you, if for it to make sense, you have to uh, cut off the part about them going into the holy city and appearing to many. I mean, I don't see any way out of that, meaning that, yeah, they were raised from the dead. Uh, zombies? Uh, who knows? Whatever. And and they went in to rejoin their families, which sort of reminds me of some chilling scenes from Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. You have to say that somebody elaborated and embellished the story in a legendary manner. Well, Matthew was already embellishing Mark in a legend-mongering manner, but uh, it, it seems weird for even him to go this far. So I think the uh, a good theory that, and not just because it saves us from extravagance, but but because in the context it it makes more sense if it simply meant 
there was an earthquake, rocks were broken by the tremors, and tombs broke open, and bodies were exposed, like what happens in a flood sometimes, right? They mention that frequently. Oh, my God, it hit the cemetery, and now there's what's left of Uncle Zeke over there and Aunt Matilda. That makes uh, that makes more sense in the context because otherwise, otherwise you have to say, well, wait a minute, what does this have to do with an earthquake and all that? And then somebody would have embellished it uh, further. So that's what I kind of think happened there. But let's, let's uh, we don't know that for sure. Suppose it was part of the Mathian original. What do you got then? Well, uh, it looks then, and some have said this, uh, I, I forget who first, uh, I think uh, Mike Lycona repeated it to his peril, unfortunately. Uh, he lost a job because he said this. And he said it's sort of a parable for the idea of the resurrection of the righteous in Christ. And, yeah, if Matthew actually wrote this, it, it almost has to mean that, that it's a kind of proleptic um, hint of the resurrection, a sign of what's to come. I mean, um, it actually says in the Pauline epistles that the resurrection of Jesus was that, the down payment, the first installment, the first fruits of the general resurrection, which they didn't think was too far off. Right, and somebody, uh, so this could just be a variation on that theme. It's saying Jesus' resurrection is the first domino to fall. Well, that, that does kind of make sense. But then there's another complication. Uh, that, uh, that would make more sense if they, uh, if they uh, rose from the dead after the resurrection of Jesus, since he'd be the first fruits. And this implies that it was uh, during the crucifixion, in connection with the earthquake, that the, the saints were raised from the dead and then went on to appear. And uh, even there, you've got to posit, as many critics do, that there has been a, a later addition to the text, this little business about after his resurrection they appeared. This introduces a weird complication because, as it now reads, you have to say, okay, as of the resurrection, they were alive again, but they must have been just sitting around shooting the breeze uh, for three days. And, uh, okay, Jesus has appeared. It's safe for us to go down now like kids on Christmas morning. That seems pointlessly absurd. Again, not hard to believe because it's a miracle. No, just because it seems like a wacky story. So it could be a theological adjustment to m save the priority of Jesus resurrection. Uh, it also opens the, uh, the interesting door, just by way of a hint, that if this was somehow actually based on people's memories, it would imply that there was a rash, a wave of sightings of those who were recently dead. Uh, that they went and showed themselves in Jerusalem and all that well, it's pretty much the same time as the supposed appearance of Jesus resurrected. Uh, and uh, it's just that the Gospels tend to abstract or extract the one 
uh, of Jesus for obvious theological purposes. Was there originally a rash of sightings of which this was a part? I mean, did some people see John the Baptist or think they saw him and so forth? Who the heck knows? There are all sorts of interesting things that crop up when you try to wrestle with this crazy text. Um... I think maybe William Lane Craig finds it so difficult to defend, though you wouldn't think he would, given that he's also a creationist, and that's just utterly intellectually bankrupt. But I think even he says that this must be uh, an interpolation, the whole thing. Uh, Then again, others have suggested that it's somehow an early reference to the harrowing of hell doctrine that you see on full display in the Gospel of Nicodemus slash Acts of Pilate. Uh, Who who knows? Um, But, again, I think the most plausible from all um, uh, standpoints is that the witnesses are right with the modification that the showing themselves uh, to the people uh, back in Jerusalem was uh, an embellishment. Um, I mean, maybe not even much of an embellishment, right? It might just, uh, originally it might simply have said that uh, that uh, the people nearby in Jerusalem saw the exposed corpses. Uh, I, I mean, that's not what it says grammatically now, but it wouldn't have taken much of a change. Uh, and uh, so the, I'm sticking with that, basically. I'll have to ask... Uh, John or Sir John or somebody, have I ever read to you my, I think I did, my story, The Righteous Rise, which is based on this? It's not a movie, but it's a piece of fiction. I think I did, and I don't want to just waste another episode reading it, but it would be fun to read if I haven't, so let me know, folks. Okay, and and Tom says, Happy Halloween. Oh, boy, yeah, you bet. Uh, Let's see, let's see. Um... From Joshua uh, Barkinger, I guess that is. Maybe it's Barchinger. I doubt that, though, but he can correct me. He says, I've always thought that the Acts of the Apostles didn't mention the Pauline epistles because they were Marcionite, and Acts is anti-Marcionite in nature. If you are saying that the author of Acts also wrote the pastorals, then what reason would the author have to not mention the pastorals within Acts? The only thing I can think of is that he wrote Luke Acts first and did not initially plan on writing the pastorals. Well, I'm thinking he did plan to, because uh, as I think uh, Charles Talbert pointed out, uh, there was a kind of a a form-critical consideration here that uh, there are a a few cases of documents written by members of a philosophical sect, one or another, more than one, and even uh, biblical groups that uh, contain a narrative of the founder some sample writings by him. Oh, I'm sorry, a narrative of the founder, a narrative of his successors and disciples, and some writings by him, all to kind of authenticate the claim of the particular sect or faction who canonized it, so to speak, as opposed to rival ones with different interpretations. And uh, uh, let's see... uh, even in the Septuagint version of Jeremiah, you have uh, uh, Jeremiah and the Epistle of Jeremiah, and uh, 
uh, Baruch uh, in there. Uh, so, you know, who, who knows? But, uh, but that's possible. However, I think that um, there's no reference to the epistles, even if they were used and uh, Richard Purvo makes a good argument that they were. The parallels between Acts and the Epistles uh, don't mean they're independent corroboration of one another, but rather simply that the writer of Acts used and rewrote elements from the Pauline Epistles as he did from Josephus. Um, but he doesn't actually tell you that's where they're from, and in a narrative, Acts... <clears throat> that uh, mentions and even quotes epistles of other people, like that of, uh, what's his name, Claudius uh, Smith or whatever. Well, no, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, uh, the centurion, he writes a letter and we read the letter. Uh, Acts 15, we've got the uh, encyclical from the Jerusalem Council and James the Just and so forth. We, so the author is not, in principle, averse to... Uh, quoting or fabricating letters, but none by Paul, nor any hint that Paul ever wrote any. Why? Well, because, uh, the, as you say, the, the Marcionite thing, these were already sacred texts used by heretics, as Tertullian said, only slightly later than the com compilation of Acts. Uh, Paul is the apostle of Marcion and the apostle of the heretics. So, um, he use the author uses Polycarp, I think, uses some of uh, some uh, details from them in order to combat them. Kind of here's a real story, uh, and uh, but then writes the pastorals as orthodox substitutes because there's a, there was a Catholic attempt by simply by putting together the canon, and again, following Trobish, I think it was Polycarp who did that, a known enemy of Marcion. There, that's, there was uh, this attempt to co-opt the Marcionites, which eventually led to saying, okay, what the heck, let's include their scriptures in the New Testament canon, though, of course, we're going to have to add some stuff to them to make them seem less uh, radical and less heretical. Uh, and uh, and let's write the pastorals to provide a kind of orthodox lens through which to interpret them. So you ask a good question, and I think there is a reasonable answer to it. That uh, there's um, the writer did know of them and even made opportunistic use of some material from them, but wanted to substitute these safe ones for him. First and Second Timothy and Titus. By the way, uh, Joseph Tyson points out that uh, probably the only way to explain that weird little thing in Acts where Paul wants to go to, I think it's Pontus, and the Holy Spirit says, no, uh-uh, I want you to go somewhere else. Don't set foot there. You know, what the heck? Well, the only way to explain it is that uh, that's where Marcion was from. And uh, the writer of Acts wanted to yank the rug out from under the Marcionites and to say, well, he wouldn't have known anything about Paul anyway. Paul never showed up there. Maybe they were making some sort of apostolic claim and... Uh, Acts tries to uh, negate it. Thanks, Josh. Um, who's our next inspired author? Here, let me take a fast look. That's uh, a little... Okay. Uh, Derek Krupka. Yeah. 
I have a red letter edition of the Bible, and in Matthew 15:34, my Bible highlights the disciples' response to Jesus about how many loaves they have. I was wondering if you uh, and the listeners would check in your own Bibles. Let's see, Matthew 15, 34. Hmm. Let's see, let's see, let's see. 15, I got so little on a page in this pocket New Testament. I got a page through several. And Jesus said to them, <clears throat> How many loaves have you? They said, Seven and a few small fish. Do you mean uh, it's in italics in the uh, version you have, or the, um, or that it's in red? Um, well, of course, in a red-letter Bible, Jesus' question would be in red, though it's a printing error if the response is. Um, but, uh, yeah, I can't tell from this. I, I don't know. Uh, of course, uh, some in, like the King James, for instance, italics means that they're supplied words. I have a little sneaking hunch here, 1534. Let me look at the Greek text and uh, we'll see what we can find. 15 mm. Ooh, very thin pages. It's tough to wedge your finger betwixt them to turn the darn page. Okay. Mm. Uh, you know, nope, nope, dang. Okay. How many loaves have you? Nah, that's in there. Hoi de epan. So they said, Hepta kai oliga ichthudia. Uh, yeah, that's the same thing. Uh, we got uh, seven and a few fish. Yeah, I don't know uh, what the problem would be there. I don't know what the emphasis would imply, but there are no supplied words in that. Uh, also, Hebrews 8.10b. uh I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. My question with these passages has to do with this. If Jesus is this new covenant predicted in the Old Testament, then a part of that's from Jeremiah, then a part of this covenant will be that no one needs to teach anybody about knowing the Lord. I would say the reason the passage reads like this is that the Jews would see the fulfillment of the prophecy and know God, so there would be no need of teaching. But moving on to the point, is uh, the point, would this imply that proselytizing and preaching to Gentiles was against uh, this covenant, and that even though the deed has been 
and that even though the deed has been done. It is 2015. Why are they still preaching? Wouldn't this accumulate? Uh, wouldn't this culminate in the uh, failing of the new covenant, which was what happened to the old covenant? Have you ever heard of this? understanding of the text and how would an apologist answer this well uh, Derek I I have always taken this to mean that uh, in the new covenant anticipated in Jeremiah and sort of in Ezekiel it's not thinking of um, the founding of a religion which would require propagating the message but that though that is the way it's kind of used in uh, in the uh, the new covenant notion is used that way both in the dead sea scrolls and in the new testament but that originally it meant that uh, what does it say the uh, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of god as the waters cover the sea it, it, that it does anticipate a time when teaching will be pointless you won't need to be catechized in the commandments and that really is the the point i think um or exhorted religiously because uh, there will be such an outpouring of the spirit at least upon the people of god that uh, obedience to the torah will be uh, second nature or first nature right that uh, you will spontaneously do what is right which is kind of what Wesleyan uh, Christian perfection teaching uh, dared to say uh, that you would you might wind up doing some things that are sin only because you don't yet know that they are right somebody says you know I, I wonder if you as a Christian should be doing that don't you see the problem here oh my gosh really okay I won't do that again uh, and um, and so I think it does mean that this, as opposed to the old covenant, Second Corinthians gets into this, as opposed to the covenant where you had external laws that you had to try to remember to keep, or you were inclined not to, and so it required some discipline. Yeah, I, I better do that. I better do a good job with that. No need to do that. Uh, or what should I do? Let's see what the Torah says. You, you won't need to do that. You'll just know because of the, the outpouring of the Spirit like Joel talks about. And I think that's what they mean. You won't need, or like First uh, John says, you have no need for anyone to teach you because uh, uh, you have the Spirit and all of that. So I think it, it means that. And, uh, it's, uh, and of course, that doesn't automatically happen. Uh, every time. So when people do their best to construct what they would like to think of as the new order of religion, the new covenant, uh, they still do have to teach it. You can see the same sort of thing happening in uh, Vedanta Hinduism, where uh, Shankara taught that uh, if you just um, understand the truth that uh, you are the Atman, that the Atman is Brahman, that will catapult you into this this uh, experience of divine oneness. Uh, and uh, that, that ought to do it. Well, of course, it didn't for hardly anybody. And so his followers wound up saying, well, maybe he meant if you meditate on it and, and in the right way. So here's some... some uh, mantras and techniques and some yoga to to get you there yeah that uh, just sort of means really that shankara was a bit over optimistic and then so were the uh 
so are Jeremiah and the others. It never quite works that way. And uh, so, uh, you know, I think all of these pious attempts to appropriate the grace of God and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and to be sanctified really are like uh, new thought affirmations you're hoping to reshape your attitudes by saying I'm claiming the Holy Spirit and all that the the rhetoric actually and literally suggests that you are tapping into divine power like when Billy Batson says the magic word Shazam and gains the powers of the gods and all that that's what you're saying with all these appropriate the grace of God and all that um, all of Protestant devotionalism is based on that, right? But it, it doesn't really happen, and, and you're using this as a technique to accommodate your attitudes and behavior to what you believe they ought to be. Now, literally, you're claiming that you don't have to do that anymore, and this results in the the uh, conscience-torturing uh, dynamic of... Uh, fundamentalist uh, pietism where you say okay i uh, it's vain to strive to be sanctified i have to rest in the lord i have to let go and let god but how are you going to do that i mean it would seem like if you say okay that's what i'm going to do that would be the result, right? But it isn't, and so they tell you uh, how to attain this state of resting in the Lord. In other words, you got to strive to rest, and it's just a maddening paradox, and I think all of that comes from this. It should just be zap according to the the promises, but um, it winds up not being that way, and you're claiming the promises is really making affirmations to try to get it through your head of course that might work right i'm just saying that there's this confusing self-contradiction yeah okay very uh very interesting point i love these questions this one is well we got a batch of questions here from brent in tennessee uh, that's okay. He says, one, I'm fond of the quote from the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 2, verse 47. You have the right to work only, but never to its fruits. Let not the fruits of action be your motive, nor let your attachment be to inaction. I know this is diametrically opposed to what we are taught in capitalism or Marxism, but this verse teaches us not to be materialistic or attached. Is there a similar verse in the Bible? Uh, well, yeah, in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Um, well, let's see here. I could give you the gist, but uh, why not uh, go to the videotape? Uh, let's see. Ooh. Oh, for instance, uh, 
verse 29, I'm, uh, I mean, brethren, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. I think that's kind of the idea. It almost sounds Buddhist, almost sounds, uh, well, it sounds very stoic. Uh, and uh, the uh, maybe the idea of the poor in spirit, and don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but rather in heaven. For wherever your treasure is, your heart will inevitably gravitate there. But I'm not sure that's what the Gita is saying. This is, I think, uh, a f foundational text for karma yoga, uh, which means you all of yoga is based on this whatever kind is based on the idea of mere witness a technical term they use meaning that you have an inner detachment from what you're doing but you do it out of a zealous sense of duty uh, why because it is your dharma assigned you by karma or by the gods or by lord krishna or whatever so you do even worldly acts, but not for worldly reward. This, in fact, you can kind of, uh, uh, various scholars have noticed parallels between Kant and uh, Hinduism, and Kant says that you can do uh, the right thing for a worldly reason, in which case it's not virtuous, it's just uh, prudential. Uh, no different from saying, like if you say, well, I'm not going to smoke because I don't want cancer. Uh, yeah, that's the right thing to do. That's the inference and the decision you want to make. Is it virtuous? Well, it's not really virtuous or unvirtuous, really. I mean, well, it kind of is virtuous if you stick to it because it, you know, it's apparently tough to do to stop smoking. Uh, so the exercise of discipline, I guess, would be virtuous. But uh, it's not in essentially the decision is neither virtuous nor uh, non-virtuous or, you know, anti-virtuous. Uh, and it's not especially noble or ignoble, uh, nor are many things in life. If I want to go to the movie theater, I got to get in the car and drive there. Uh, if I want to go out for pizza, I got to get in the car or walk or whatever. I mean, there are things you do in order to attain certain ends. Nobody's criticizing you. For it, um, you uh, just be able to pay your bills. You got to work a job, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, you, you could be indolent, and even that wouldn't be immoral if you want to just survive as a slacker on a minimum level. I mean, if that's what you want to do, what the heck, right? But um, Kant said if, if that uh, he says you can you can act in accordance with duty. But, or let's take this example, I, I manage not to steal. Uh, I'm, however tempted I may be, uh, I remember once in the Montclair State uh, College Library, there was this great book called Lost and Hostile Gospels. I knew nobody else was going to read this book, and I was tempted to just lift it. But I realized I can't do that. I can't steal a book, so I didn't. Well, somebody else did, uh, because later on I found out that it was gone. But don't worry, I got my own copy later. 
but uh, I uh, so so why would you not steal? Well, I could be caught. That would be acting in accordance with duty, because you're not supposed to steal. Uh, but it's like uh, Rhett Butler says to Scarlett O'Hara, you're like the man who, uh, sorry, not sorry, he stole the watch, but sorry that he got caught. Right? Oh, I don't want to get caught, and so I'm not going to do it. But I just felt like, nah, I, I can't lower myself to do that. So I guess I was acting for the sake of duty in Kant's terms. Uh, and uh, so it's not the end in view, but the rightness of the act. And uh, yeah, Kant said uh, there are two types of imperatives. Uh, there is the hypothetical imperative, or uh, one might say prudential, if I want this result, not going to jail, uh, whatever, getting better so I should take the medicine, if, if I want this result, this is the means to it, so that's what I'll, do, what I'll do. That's acting for the sake of the fruits of action. But if I, <coughs> uh, if I do what is right because it's right, I'm acting, uh, I'm obeying the, the, the uh, categorical imperative. As we say, it's categorically right not to steal, so that's why uh, you, you refrain from it. I think that's kind of what it's getting at in the Bhagavad Gita, that uh, it um, is the basis for various kinds of yoga, as notably bhakti yoga, uh, B-H-A-K-T-I, which is just devotional yoga. I think that is, in effect, what uh, evangelical, Pentecostal, fundamentalist piety is. Have a little talk with Jesus. You know, this kind of stuff. My personal savior, this gooey kind of... Uh, he walks with me and he talks with me and all that stuff. Uh, um, I find it kind of disgusting, but different folks, different strokes for different folks. Uh, uh, and so there's Bhakti Yoga. Find, find it in Buddhism also. And uh, you have a personal savior, whether it's uh, Krishna, Ram, uh, Shiva, Kali, uh, Avalokiteshvara, whatever. Uh, but there's also this uh, this karma yoga where you're you're doing things because you are supposed to do them. In the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna, a general on the eve of battle, is thinking. What is really the point of all this bloodshed I'm about to commit? And um, the god Krishna says, "Hey, uh, last time I looked, you belonged to the the uh, Kshatriya caste, uh, you, the warrior caste. Uh, let's not uh, chicken out here. Let's not become a bleeding heart. You know what you have to do because that is your dharma." Uh, to be a warrior. Oh, jeez, okay, right. Uh, and that's uh, karma yoga. What will it achieve, uh, Arjuna is wondering. It's just a lot of death, really? What's the point? Hey, look, that's not the way to think. You are a warrior. Once I had a student in a philosophy class who had uh, who had uh, killed a lot of people in Bosnia, uh, shooting the bad guys. He was a sniper and so forth. And he's, he asked if this, if I thought this was immoral of him to have done. And I quoted the Gita and said, no, you, this was your dharma as a soldier. It's not like you're some kind of murderer or something. 
Well, okay, uh, so that's uh, I, that's what I think's going on there. I'm sorry to sermonize for so long, but it's such a good question. Uh, two, a cross appears to me to be a hard thing to make, given the tools that were available 2,000 years ago. Wouldn't it have been uh, more likely that if Jesus existed, he would have been crucified on a tree rather than a cross between two others who had been placed on a cross? I guess crosses could have been reused just like a gallows, so maybe it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, I, I don't think it is a big deal because they they certainly did reuse them. And um, it's not that tough to uh, to uh, make one. If you're going to make a door, you can make a cross, right? And uh, though there were people crucified on trees, so that that certainly happened too. Uh, three, a few years ago, I heard a podcast of Noam Chomsky saying that the word prophet originally meant dissident. The prophet's arguments eventually won out, and the original writings that the prophets were rebelling against have been lost. Uh, this leads to the word prophet coming into its current meaning. Dr. Chomsky's father was a Jewish scholar. When I asked Dr. Chomsky about it, he said the original works have been lost, so we do not know. Do you know anything about this? I, I don't think there's anything to... Well, I, I shouldn't say that. There's something to what he's saying uh, that... Uh, that the prophets are depicted as gadflies and uh, gutsy uh, speakers of truth to power. Yeah, we, we get that impression. Um, Amos goes up, who's just a shepherd and a tree tender. Uh, he goes up against, uh, what is it, as Amaziah, the uh, chief... Uh, priest of the Bethel sanctuary and uh, and uh, Jeremiah's denouncing the kings for exploiting their workers and all that. So yeah, they they did that, but there's no mystery as to what they were talking about, really. It's stated in their books. Uh, there's this great thing in uh, Matthew where Jesus denounces the Pharisees and he says, what a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, you uh, build these fancy tombs to venerate the holy prophets when it was your successors of the guys that martyred them. Uh, well, it's safe to like them now, right? Uh, but at the time, they were really um, uh, pain in the butt. But it's all over now, so... Now, why? I mean, because you successfully defeated them and extinguished their messages? Uh, or is it because... Uh, their protests worked uh, it's there's a good likelihood of that i mean there, there is a heavy ethical emphasis on any in any kind of emerging judaism uh, so chomsky's assuming i think that they were silenced and neutralized but uh, and and I uh, I see that 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 could be and that uh, passage from matthew implies that kind of hypocrisy but on the other hand, uh, they uh, may have succeeded in reforming uh, the religion of their day. Paul Tillich has a great discussion of this in his book, Biblical Religion and the Search for Ultimate Reality. And he shows that uh, the prophets were much like the Greek philosophers in this. They're isolated from the communities whom they exhort and try to teach 
and uh, yet they're part of the community in that they feel responsibility for it. And sometimes it really does work. Uh, but uh, if he mean if Chomsky means we hear only one side of the conversation, uh, that's a strange argument for him to make because it kind of implies that uh, that the it sounds like he's saying we no longer are privy to the whole story, and that would imply that he doesn't buy the canonical account in the books of the prophets which very clearly makes some gadflies and dissidents what does he mean that if we knew the whole story we would see that that's bunk uh, and uh, I, I, there are no other texts we know of that were lost I think he's just talking out his butt as he usually does um, in his politics he manages to uh, spew all kinds of uh, falsehoods and I suspect that's what he's doing here um, please don't write me telling me how wrong I am I just uh, don't care for Chomsky apologetics uh, and that's beside the point here it's just that somebody brought him up okay um, uh, let's see uh, for on the August 29th podcast you were talking uh, about how Paul, in quotes, may be considered the second founder of Christianity and that he took something already existing and changed it. Then you went on to say that the same thing happened with Jainism because Mahavira took over what Vardhamana was already teaching. No, I, I didn't say that exactly. Uh, in fact, let me go ahead and read what you got off of a website. Vardhamana was another name for Mahavira, uh, that's what I said. Uh, now, maybe I uh, did uh, misspeak, but uh, I think that's what I said. Um, uh, see here, the thing is that there was uh, at least, well, there were supposed to be like 23 previous um, Jainist uh, saints, just like there were 23 or 24 previous Buddhas. And uh, the one before Vardhamana Mahavira was Parsva, and some of the same stories are told about both of them, and uh, scholars generally tend to think that uh, Vardhamana was the historical founder and that Mahavira was a... F uh, I'm sorry, see, I just made that mistake, that Parsva was the founder and that uh, Mahavira Vardhamana was uh, some kind of reformulator or second founder. They say the same thing about the Buddha, that Gautama, Prince Siddhartha, was the historical Buddha despite the mythological retrojection of the Buddha into the remote past with all of these previous uh, Buddhas. I tend to think it's the other way around, that the same, the fact that the same story is told again and again and again implies that there was no historical Buddha, that Gautama was just as legendary as the rest of them, and it may be the, the case here too. Okay, but if I mixed them up, as I just did, I'm sorry about that, Parsva is the uh, the previous one that is credited often with being the founder. If I made a mistake, thank you for pointing that out, Brad. I'm glad to correct it. 
right, let's see. Oh, yeah, he, then he followed up with another email. One more quick one on the August 29 podcast concerning what to call someone who believes Jesus existed, but that most of the stories are mythical. You seem to struggle a little with an answer. Wouldn't that be a person be a Jesus minimalist? Well, that would be a good name, but uh, I tend to think that is, I think it's more helpful to apply that to mythicism, because Old Testament minimalism implies that most of the characters in the Old Testament, Moses, David, uh, all of them up to something like King Omri, uh, Solomon, and so on, that these guys never existed either. So I think New Testament minimalism or Jesus minimalism would be better applied, though what you say certainly does make sense. But I would just say the Bultmann type approach and that of the Jesus seminar is just the critical life of Jesus study. Bart Ehrman, right? He thinks there was a Jesus, but thinks that a whole lot of the material is legendary accretion. So I'd just say mainstream gospel criticism but it is a little slippery yeah um, <laughs> uh, let's see I wonder if I have omitted part of the question here because I have Brent's name under simply a quote he probably asked what it supposed to mean i if i have uh accidentally cut out the context i'm sorry but uh, think not that i am come to send peace on earth i came not to send peace but a sword uh well what does that mean it seems to be a correction of a contemporary christian view of what the meaning the meaning or the point of the coming of jesus was that he came to bring peace oh yeah i wouldn't be too sure uh he came to bring a sword well what does that mean well very obviously it could be a slogan from christian revolutionaries or simply those who wanted to fight against rome but we, in the context in which we now read it, it refers to sectarian division, the same issue that is dealt with in early in 1 Corinthians 7, that um, the sword is th- this new faith that will divide families because some will convert and some will not. And suppose you do and your spouse doesn't. What are you going to do? 1 Corinthians 7 deals with that. It says, look, that uh, if you're... Uh, if your spouse doesn't convert but doesn't want to make any trouble over it, don't leave them because you think it's unholy. No, no. You're not fornicating in the eyes of God. Your children are not illegitimate. Don't worry. Uh, if the uh, spouse just can't stand it well, and wants you to get out, well, do it. Uh, and you can remarry in that case. You're not bound to the marriage. You know, you can see why that would be because um, somebody would say, "Look, I can't break up my family. I've got a. Uh, I think I'm going to forget Christianity." And they case, "No, no, no. Uh, you should, if you can, stay with them, uh, do it. But if you can't, get out of it." And the, uh, I think that's the sort. It goes on to say, 
um, from now on, a man's enemies will be those of his own household and so forth, which is really a quote from, I think it's Amos. And uh, as Bultmann said, who remembers the great man quoting somebody else? Right, so that it would imply that some Christian author has tried to interpret or reinterpret the sword thing uh, in that manner. Uh, but uh, that could be the point. I mean, that certainly was a happening. Uh, we know that in the Hellenistic world generally. Plutarch and his, his uh, work, Advice to the Bride and Groom, says that uh, a wife should stick with her husband's religion and not go sneaking off to uh, worship other gods uh, while he's at, at work. Uh, and I uh, says, no God can can appreciate that kind of worship. So that was going on. There were people, women apparently going off into exotic religions to relieve household boredom, I would imagine, tedium. And uh, that's undermining the husband's authority. So Plutarch says, don't do it. So that's a similar sort of an issue here as in First Corinthians 7 and I would guess in this passage. Okay, who's next up? It's uh, Zvonimir Brikalo in Croatia. He says, uh, in Luke 13, um, no, I'm sorry, Luke 1, 3, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, etc., is Theophilus a historical person? His name sounds suspicious to me, uh, in my limited knowledge. Does it mean God worshiper? Yeah, God lover. Yeah. Uh, most New Testament figures have names with really obvious m meanings to their role in the story. Jesus, Savior, uh, Mary, Peter, etc. Does that in, uh, in a way add to the supposed fact that the whole New Testament is a work of fiction and not a historical account? Well, whenever I see those names, I, I do think we're dealing with fiction. But um, this one is, uh, your suggestion is actually very common among Orthodox literalist writers who are saying, like, you know, even literalists don't believe that there's, such, that there's no such thing as metaphor, right? And uh, so um, people have very plausibly suggested that Theophilus is supposed to mean dear reader who loves God. Uh, who else is going to be interested? Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, though I tend to think that it is supposed to be an official of some sort, Your Excellency Theophilus, just as Paul is depicted later on saying, Most Excellent Festus. But I uh, nowadays, I tend to go along with uh, Stephen Huller and others who say that, no, this is so this work is so late luke and acts that it's polycarp writing to theophilus the bishop of antioch uh and so i tend to go with that but really you know any of those uh those options would be uh would be plausible it's frustrating that there's an embarrassment of riches um uh let's see uh, J.J. says, what do you know about the origin and meaning of the belief that the world came into being through Christ? The expression of this belief appears in Hebrews 1, 2. 
In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. Colossians 1, 15-16 He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. And, of course, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, probably appears elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Um, uh, he says, I notice that these texts do not claim that the world was created by Christ, but rather that the world was created through Christ. And the author of Colossians adds that the world was created in Christ and for Christ. Perhaps that is meaningful. Are there any clues about the understandings of the Creator Christ in the synoptics? Um, have different schools of theology spoken about this aspect of Christ? Also, what translation of the Bible do you recommend for a critical reader? I use an NRSV, but I think you, I heard you lambast the NRSV a few weeks back. Yeah, I don't care for it as a translation. It's too much like the New International Version. It's not literal enough. I prefer uh, the uh, old Revised Standard Version or the New American Standard Version. Uh, however, uh, what I prefer even more is to compare translations. Uh, not so much the new slangier ones, the politically correct ones. Though, let me hasten to add that there are a few places in the new RSV where they correct errors uh, from the old RSV, but on the whole, I prefer the old one. Okay, it's good to, like the proverb says, in a multitude of counselors, wisdom is established. Well, yeah, that's good for Bible reading, too. Um, checking different translations shows you the possibilities in the text. Um, so I like the New English Bible, the Jerusalem Bible, uh, the, and the uh, the Bible in American translation by uh, I think it's Theophil Meek and uh, Edgar J. Goodspeed, but uh, I like those and uh, the RSV and the uh, oh the New American Bible, not the New New American Bible, but the original one and the NASV. So anyway, what about the in cry through Christ and all that? Well, the uh, the key passage you quote is Hebrews where the language is it matches exactly what it says in the book the wisdom of solomon about the the wisdom uh, uh, the, the personified wisdom of god a notion taken from proverbs 8 where wisdom says in the beginning i was with uh, god and uh, acted like a foreman during the creation and so forth well the wisdom of solomon puts it oh, in fact let me grab the, a copy of that uh, it um, this is a great Hellenistic Jewish uh, book, kind of like a second book of Proverbs, actually. Uh, and uh, yeah, let's see. Oh boy, I'm uh, not sure where it is. I've got it uh, underlined somewhere in here. Let's see if I can find the darn thing the the personified wisdom becomes the logos of the word really synonymous and 
uh, they and that underlies this kind of Christology. Um, boy. Um, sorry about this. You might think I would look this stuff up. Here we go. Uh, wisdom 7, uh, 24 and following. For wisdom is more mobile than any motion. Very similar to something in the Upanishads, by the way. Because of her pureness, she pervades and penetrates all things. For she is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her, for she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, and an image of his goodness. So that's Wisdom of Solomon seven twenty-four through uh, 26. And that is, uh, I mean, it's very clear that uh, that's what Hebrews is referring to, and that kind of sets the tone that Colossians and John 1, they're based on that too. Is there any intimation of that uh, in the synoptics? Uh, M. Jack Suggs, S-U-G-G-S, I think, uh, what was the title of the book? Uh, Something like Wisdom Christology in Matthew's Gospel. He argues that that Matthew understands Jesus to be pre-existent wisdom incarnate. And uh, he he sees this in Matthew, where there is a Q passage, which in Luke reads, Therefore, um, the wisdom of God says, I will send you prophets and wise men, and so forth and so on. In Matthew, it starts differently. Therefore, I will send you prophets and wise men and all that stuff. Uh, not wisdom said they cut out the middle man or middle woman and uh, and it's just Jesus saying it and Suggs infers from that that Matthew has simply omitted the difference that for him Jesus is wisdom so it's him saying it could be seems a little iffy to me I mean very plausible but uh, it could just be that uh, um Matthew figured, well, why introduce the wisdom thing? I mean, it's if Jesus is supposed to be quoting it, let's just have him say it. Uh, who cares uh, about the element of wisdom? So I'm, I'm not so sure that's true, though it's a plausible reading. Um, so that's about all I can think of, really, in terms of synoptic uh, intimations and so on. Um, hmm. Uh, now, there's also a, a wider Hellenistic religious parallel. I think Robert M. Grant pointed this out once, that we're told that Hermes is the word of Zeus through whom he created things. Of course, Hermes is the messenger god, so that would make him like the word anyhow, right? And I believe Athena is also said to be that. Uh, and... Uh, so forth because she's the goddess of wisdom and so it's a it's you know not unique to hellenistic judaism uh philo talks about the logos in great detail i I mean i tend to think it's actually is the source of john's uh pre-existence christology if you want to say it was created by christ i think people don't like to say that because it would imply that you're 
erase, it sounds patropassian, as if you're just simply identifying Christ with the Father. And uh, they don't want to say that. Uh, no, he was the the instrumentality for God's act in creation. Now, what does that mean? What did the writer picture? I don't know. Um, uh, but uh, to say he did it, that reminds me once of when somebody said to me, well, Jesus said, and then they quoted something from uh, the epistles. I don't think they... Uh, thought Jesus wrote the epistles. They just figured, well, God is the ultimate author, and Jesus is God, so Jesus said it if it's in the Bible. Oh, oh boy. I see the reasoning, but that's just so misleading. I think that's what uh, would uh, people would say, that Christ is the creator. That'd be the same kind of misleading thing. What does it mean that it was created in Christ? Uh, that could be that um, I think uh, Gnostics thought that it did mean that in the Gospel of John that Christ w contained it, uh, that he was like the cosmic womb from which the world emerged. But uh, it could be a, a dative of means and simply a poetic way of repeating through Christ. I tend to think that's that's what it means, but who knows? I mean, there is like weird Gnostic stuff there uh, sometimes like that, um, especially in Colossians, uh, that uh, the pleroma of God dwelt in him. Well, that's a techni technical Gnostic term, the, the fullness, the divine realm of light. So who who knows? This would be kind of like that. Um, created for him. That uh, in uh, Colossians seems to imply, again, a Gnostic. I think Colossians is simply Gnostic. It doesn't give you all the Gnostic terminology, but uh, that doesn't matter. I think it's, it is just definitely Gnostic. And it, it says that it's all things come you know, the from him or whatever, through him and for him, it implies that uh, the Gnostic creation myth where the the uh, bungling demiurge created the material world and stole sparks of the pleromatic light to give it order and motion, but that the, uh, the Gnostic revealer has come to awaken those humans who have sparks of the divine uh, so that upon death they can go back to their true home the pleroma and uh, when that is complete uh, the material world just a mud pile a dung heap will vanish and I think that's what they mean all things will return to uh, to the pleromatic Christ um, when you ask about uh, theological uh, views of this, you're really talking about, I think, the notion of divine pre-existence. Uh, what, what is the, does that, uh, well, does the New Testament really mean that? Are we to believe that? And uh, it's funny that... Uh, Colossians is a burr under the saddle of uh, a couple of different perspectives. If you believe in the pre-existence of Christ, the, the wisdom, the logos, whatever, 
you, uh, you well, let's see, if you were an Aryan, right, not a Hitler Aryan, but an Arius Aryan who believed that Christ was the first created being through which Christ as wisdom was the first born of creation through whom everything else was created, you can believe in pre-existence without eternal pre-existence. Uh, so they kind of like, uh, and, and uh, let's see, uh, Arians would sort of like the um, passage in Colossians where it says he's the firstborn of creation. Okay, preexistent, not eternally preexistent. See what we tell you. Uh, apologists for orthodoxy really wriggle around like a fish on the hook with this one because they say, no, 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 it uh, it must mean that uh, it's indicating his priority in authority that he was given the office uh, of, the, metaphorically, perhaps, of the firstborn son who inherits everything. He reigns over the, the household and all that. And firstborn, that designation could, in fact, historically be given to someone who was not literally the firstborn son. But that's stretching it, it seems to me, because uh, what did uh, Jesus uh, did the pre-existent Christ come over from a neighboring universe or something? Uh, I mean, uh, certainly it's uh, it, it doesn't have anything like that in view. Um, so I think the Arian reading of that is quite correct. But then you got the Christadelphians who believe that Jesus was not a pre-existent being but that he existed, quote-unquote, in the mind of God as part of the plan of salvation. But there was no Jesus Christ in any manner before his virgin birth. And so what do they do with the firstborn of creation? Well, that. He wasn't actually preexistent and so forth. So that that's a real toughie. It's one of many odd things in Colossians people can't make any sense of. Um... I guess that's pretty much it. Yeah, a very important thing in, in Christology, New Testament theology. Uh, some great books on New Testament Christology. One of them, uh, the classic, I guess, in many ways, is uh, Oscar Kuhlmann, C-U-L-L-M-A-N-N, uh, The Christology of the New Testament, and Reginald Fuller's book, uh, The Foundations of New Testament Christology. And there's some other ones, uh, too, but that's good enough at the moment. Okay, I think I'm going to call it quits uh, on uh, the Bible Geek for today. Hopefully I'll be back soon, uh, real soon, I mean. Uh, and uh, and so I'm, I do have a bunch of questions, but I certainly welcome ever more, right? So don't you hesitate to send in a question and don't be afraid it's a stupid question there are few if any of those so uh thanks for being with me and uh, let me make another shameless appeal for funds to keep this ministry on the air hallelujah or should i say to keep the lights on here if, if you can help out i'd appreciate it if not don't worry about it so thanks again folks see you soon In that ancient lore of old 
The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn